Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 24, All Good Things. Last time, we left off with Thomas Watson of IBM declaring the next International Commerce Committee to be held in Berlin, Germany in late June of 1937. To the best of his ability, Watson was pursuing his business as usual with the police state. He was also pursuing profits. Due to his leadership, 2,500 delegates would arrive in Berlin from all over the world, some 42 countries in all. There were, among that number, 95 delegates from the United States with their families and about 900 from Nazi Germany. Probably in a moment of braggadocio, Watson let it be known before the conference started that he would, afterward, be traveling to Italy to meet with the great statesman, Mussolini, to assist in making that fascist state run a little smoother. He also told delegates he bumped into that the next meeting, scheduled for 1939, would be held in Tokyo, Japan. IBM was already there, of course, helping that country streamline its air force and its impressive aircraft carriers. And on June 28, 1937, Watson and Hitler met in a secluded room within the Reich Chancellery. No notes from the conversation were taken down, but afterward, Watson told the press that, quote, there will be no war. No country wants war. No country can afford it, unquote. The ICC took place in the German Opera House, also used by the Reichstag, since their building's destruction early in Hitler's reign. Tension built throughout the evening as Hitler, per his M.O., was late. But music played as the conversations grew louder and louder. Then Hitler walked in and headed towards his personal box in the opera. Wave after wave of shouted Sieg Heils rose up towards Germany's leader. Then many stood and raised their hand in the Nazi salute. Watson stood as well, caught up in the moment, but then caught himself before his right hand could move. Then the speeches came from Goering and other high-ranking officials. Their theme was German rearmament was for defense only, as German borders touched so many countries wishing ill to the fatherland. Other speakers went even further. They fervently hoped for appeasement of German demands, because the only other course was war, and no one wanted that. There was entertainment, of course, more singing, all the champagne one could want, presentations of ballet, then came Watson's moment. Hitler's medal, given to Nazi economics minister Schott to pin on Watson, was an eight-pointed gold-framed cross of white enamel embedded with German eagles and Nazi emblems, which hung from the neck by a ribbon of black, red, and white. Watson was enchanted. As was customary, when Watson returned to New York, he wrote to Hitler, thanking him for his medal, and that he would continue to work to bring about an understanding between their two countries. Then, Watson got his own wire from Berlin. But it wasn't from anyone in the Nazi government. It was from a young lady who needed his help. The young lady, Ilsa Mayer, had worked for the Reich Statistical Office in Berlin for eight years. But, as a Jew, it was not safe to remain any longer. Quote, no doubt you know the condition of living here, and it would be useless to give any further reasons for my immigration. Unquote. 
By 1937, the Nazi government's objective was to deny the Jews, any Jews, a moment of peace. Before a film started, Nazis would walk into a theater and demand that all Jews stand up so they could be escorted out. No more than four Jews could gather in any place, otherwise they were breaking the law. Park benches had signs that informed Jews they were not to sit there. Synagogues were shut down, most torn down, and replaced with something the Aryans found useful, like a parking lot. And with all that had happened, was happening now, for Hitler, it was not enough. Not happening fast enough. There was only one thing for it. There would be another census taken. But this one would serve two purposes. One, it would prepare the country for military mobilization, and two, it would narrow even more the accuracy of those persons of Jewish descent or faith. This census would take place in May of 1938, and now that the Nuremberg Laws were on the books, a special punch card would be made, recording the response to the question, Were any of your grandparents Jewish? And Dehomag was there. The contract was worth 3.5 million Reichmarks, and the government would pay in monthly installments for 15 months. But as this was the equivalent of two census, more sorters, tabulators, and machines were needed, not to mention another 90 million punch cards. But the executives at Dehomag had to be careful with their overhead. Memos flew back and forth stating, this may be the last census of its kind considering what would be happening to the remaining Jews afterward. The problem was to obtain the staff and equipment to do the job, but to still make sure the company made a healthy profit. If anything, the government in Berlin all but proved this kind of thinking was necessary. When an official was quoted in the newspapers, quote, It is the duty of every folks comrade to answer every single question completely and truthfully giving the Fuhrer and his colleagues the basis for the future legislation for the next five to ten years, unquote. But then, the May 1938 census was delayed, but for a very good reason. After behind-the-scenes diplomacy, but honestly, more physical intimidation than anything else, Austria was absorbed into the Third Reich, creating a greater Germany. Hitler gave the forced union the gentler title of Anschluss, or annexation, as if bringing the two countries together was merely an act of signing a paper. Now, as the details of dealing with Jews had already been worked out in Germany proper, the intimidation scheme was put into practice almost immediately in Austria. First came the abuse and harassment, which would hopefully lead to mass flight, but for those that did not leave right away, the second step, arrests, soon started. Then, new concentration camps were being constructed, while other, more established ones, were becoming packed. However, some Jews were loaded into trucks and dumped into the Jewish section of Vienna, their homes and possessions now belonging to the Nazi party, to give to worthier Aryans. Next, on June 30, 1938, Around 10,000 Jewish-owned businesses were ordered to fire all of their Jewish employees and hire Aryans in their place. Then came a more systematic approach, as anyone identified as Jewish, Sigmund Freud being one of them, were forcibly put on any mode of transportation available and transferred out of Austria, 
without the majority of their possessions. If this wasn't enough, exacting lists of Jewish persons were soon made public. The new masters of Austria had any and all forces look for these people and round them up for arrest or deportation. These individuals singled out were the intelligentsia, the professors, doctors, lawyers, and other specialists. Once again, the New York Times wrote of the precision of these lists without knowing their true source. Dehelmog owned and controlled by IBM. Even before Hitler came to power, IBM had, albeit, a small presence in Austria in the form of an agency, Firth and Company. But before 1933 was over, Watson had a business wholly owned by IBM established in Vienna and Firth was offered a position as co-manager. So off went Firth to New York for training. And it was IBM that handled the 1934 census in Austria, thus the knowledge the Nazi party had when it marched across the border. As the Anschluss had always been a part of Hitler's plan, the tabulating company in Austria was visited by Adolf Eichmann, a specialist on the Jewish question, weeks before Austria was taken over. To his great surprise, the information concerning the Jews, their jobs, addresses, age, and relations were all organized and ready for the Nazis. Eichmann later testified, quote, For weeks in advance, before the Anschluss, every able-bodied man they could find was put to work in three shifts, writing file cards for an enormous circular card file, which a man sitting on a piano stool could operate and find any card he wanted, thanks to a system of punch holes. All information, important for Austria, was entered on these cards. The data was taken from annual reports, handbooks, the newspapers of all the political parties, everything imaginable, whether Jew, Freemason, or practicing Catholic, or Protestant. During that period, our regular work was put on ice, unquote. In other words, the May 1938 census was put on hold so that Dehomag and Nazi officials could plan out a more effective census for the now 70 million Germans within this new Greater Germany. Outside this new Nazi-controlled land, major newspapers were shocking their readers with stories of not only Jews, but also the harassment of Catholics, intellectuals, and gypsies, and any other group deemed inappropriate to exist within the greater Germany. But all of this was as of nothing compared to what the outside world, especially citizens in the U.S. who were still on the fence about Hitler, were about to read of. On November 10, 1938, an organized but still brutal wave of violence swept through almost every town within Germany and Austria, aimed at the Jews. It would be remembered as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. This was in response to a Jewish refugee who killed a German consular officer when trying to flee. Of course, this one incident is nothing compared to what the self-described Aryans had done to the Jews. But again, it's important to remember the mindset of Hitler. He was trying to save the world, well, his world, from the Jewish menace, and now they were fighting back. It was time to win this battle. Along with the at least thousands of deaths, with many more savage beatings, every glass pane of a Jewish home or business was shattered. Thus the name The Horrible Night is remembered by.
In fact, the only synagogue not burned down that night was the biggest one in Vienna, because it housed the records of the Jewish community there. Still, this horrible night crossed the line for most who were still undecided. The world now knew exactly what Hitler's intent was for the future. The incremental steps may have been hard to put together, but now that was behind everyone. The Nazis, their victims, and the eyes of the world. The United States withdrew its ambassador, as did other Western nations. But more importantly, the veil was removed from many eyes within the world's capitals. Clearly, if Hitler was capable of this, then his declaration of having no more territorial gains was equally false and hollow. Thomas Watson of IBM had also seen the writing on the wall. When he returned to New York shortly after Kristallnacht, he wrote a letter to Dr. Schott, the man who had put the medal on him, stating that Germany was about to lose all goodwill he and others had worked so hard to create. He felt he owed it to his second largest customer to say so. The letter was dated November 25, 1938, but it was never sent. However, a second letter addressed to Hitler personally replaced it. This one was dated the same day. It spoke of Watson's gratitude for his medal and his desire to keep on working closely with Germany to help them achieve their goals. But that the goodwill Germany had in the U.S. was now gone. If Germany could alter or soften its policies in dealing with its minorities, then that would go a long way to recapturing some of that lost goodwill. Then they could, together, go on with their mutual business for the betterment of Germany. But Hitler ignored the world and its reaction. Somehow, Watson's letter was misaddressed and never made it to Hitler. It was returned unopened. Watson's secretary tried to send it again four months later. Of course, one would think that a letter to Hitler, the leader of Nazi Germany, from an important person, would have found its way there. But alas. Now that Greater Germany was about to use Haller technology on an unprecedented scale, Watson quickly learned the art of doublespeak. He never mentioned Germany in his financial reports to his shareholders, supported America's right to arm and defend itself, while using bland and meaningless language when discussing the Hitlerite state. But those were just words, or really the lack thereof. More obscurity was needed. So, in May of 1938, soon after Austria was annexed, Watson had Dehomag take over the IBM-owned business there. The veil that had worked so well in Germany could now work for him in Austria. But events were about to conspire against Watson and his seemingly never-ending wave after wave of profits. By the fall of 1938, Nazi Germany was close to bankruptcy. The world had reacted, not with invasion, as Hitler knew they would not, but with an economic blockade to their persecution of the Jews. Fewer nations were buying German-made products. The result was that the much stronger foreign currency was not coming in to lift up the fatherland. It had taken a while, but the effects were now manifest and getting worse. Berlin, in response, passed another monetary law that said no longer could German-made products be shipped outside the country unless cash was coming in. 
This flew in the face of Dehelmag selling its machines to other European markets in order to send that cash owed to IBM to New York across the Atlantic. First, the money had to go through Germany, which was, understandably, extremely hesitant to let it out. And there were other troubles as well. On August 25, 1938, a European vice president of IBM sent a memo to New York stating, quote, Both brass and copper and other alloys play a big part in the mechanism of all our machines, and these metals are very scarce in Germany, at least, I am told. They require them for war materials, unquote. And it only got worse. The year before, the Reich Ministry deciding the punch card system was of vital interest to the fate of the Third Reich created a special branch. Its only function to oversee Dehomag and the use of its abilities. The Maschinelles Berichtwesen, or Office of Automated Reporting, otherwise known as MB, would decide where new Hotherth machines would go. But surely, this was not a big deal to a loyal German company. In fact, Dehomag probably welcomed this supervision, knowing their efforts were helping defend the country against any possible aggression nations. Right? Of course, the MB also made sure that Hollerth technology was being utilized in the pursuit of the Jews, as well as readying the country, its people, and the economy for war. Reports showed the reducing number of Jews throughout Germany, and soon throughout Austria. For example, Nuremberg had 7,500 Jews in 1933, but in 1937, that number had been reduced to 4,000. It was the same story all over the place. The terror tactics, legal decrees, enforced encampment, and financial pressures were doing their job. IBM and Dehomag were also quickly learning that it was no good trying to plan for the future, as it was completely out of their hands. For example, in 1938, Hitler kept pressing Czechoslovakia over the treatment of its three million Sudetenland Germans. Supposedly, the Czech government was treating their German-speaking citizens, much like Berlin was treating their Jewish citizens. And this, Hitler would not stand for. The days of pushing Germans around was over. But in order to avoid war, Britain, France, Italy, and Germany signed the Munich Agreement on September 30th, 1938. And within days, literally, of when German troops crossed the now non-existent border, Jewish citizens within the Sudetenland were being rounded up, their names and locations known to the newly arrived invaders. Getting over their shock, about 40,000 Jews, their Czech nationality meaningless, rushed east, leaving German-controlled territory. But the Czech government in not wanting to give Hitler any excuse for taking more land, would not allow the refugees to enter. Thus, in no man's land did these people stay, without food or shelter. Eventually, they were forced back to the German side, abused, placed in camps, or loaded up and dumped back into no man's land. Not that this attempted appeasement by Czechoslovakia did any good. The rest of the country was invaded and occupied on March 15th, 1939. So, how did the Germans, from whatever branch or agency they reported to, know where the Jews in Czechoslovakia were? Because IBM was already there, had been there, since shortly after Hitler came to power. Soon the company, 
but under another name, was handling their customs duties, and by 1937, the Czechoslovakian state railways. Information about the staffs of these two government agencies were already being organized for future implementation. Within a week of when the rest of the Czech state was invaded, Hitler was already threatening Poland, Lithuania, and other neighbors with invasion over other issues Hitler deemed degrading to German-speaking peoples in those respective countries. And during that time, IBM and Dehelmog thought they had learned a lesson in planning out their future. As various reports were signed in trying to efficiently plan out Dehelmog's expansion, a letter from an IBM European vice president to Watson's personal emissary to Europe included the following statement, quote, Considering present changes in the map of Europe, don't you consider it best to just wait? Unquote. But in the end, all these problems, Nazi Germany not wanting cash leaving its borders, Berlin taking a firmer hand in Dehamag's day-to-day business dealings, open war possible at any moment, paled in comparison to another flare-up between Watson and Heidegger. Berlin, feeling the financial chokehold put on it by the rest of the world, had hit the leader of Dehamag with a 90,000 Reichmark tax bill and wanted a loan for a much bigger sum. But Heidinger was certainly doing his part to stimulate the German economy by spending the 7,000 Reichmarks each month he got from New York. Simply, he did not have the funds for the tax bill or the loan. And, of course, Berlin did not know that New York controlled the money and the company. But Watson had learned a thing or two about Dehamag's leader and let the infuriating man stew for a while. This did not sit well with the men in Nazi uniforms, as a report had recently reached Defuhrer's desk that said, despite all the work the Nazi party had done, with the help of Dehamag, there were, at this moment, in mid-July 1939, almost 100,000 more Jews within the greater Germany than had been in Germany in 1933. Of course, most of these new additions had come from the annexation of Austria, the Sudetenland, and the takeover of Czechoslovakia. But Hitler had declared that the greater Germany would be Jew-free, and this report would not do. Simply, this was not the time to be seen as an obstacle to Hitler's plans, even if one did not know the details. Hitler would soon, once again, attempt a bloodless coup, pitting his aggressive rhetoric against the war-weary allies. Probably in the east, but in case Germany's enemies finally found their backbone, the Wehrmacht had to be ready, which meant money and material. Which brings us back to Heidinger and his tax problem. But then, in steps Watson, with his impeccable sense of timing. Working through Heidinger, because he was the face of Dehamag, Watson let the Nazi party know that the money was there to be had, but that Dehamag was looking to make payments on the tax bill and needed more time for the loan, hoping, of course, never to actually give any money over. In return, Dehamag, but really IBM, could offer Berlin something no one had. Not only were there faster punchers, faster tabulators, and faster sorters that were now available, not only could Deho Mog, but again, really IBM, offer Hollerth technology that could now alphabetize instead of relying on every single person being given a number, 
but as Hollerith technology was being used throughout Europe and South America. Jews from countries surrounding Germany could be identified. Friends or like-minded groups of Nazi Germany, like in Brazil or in Syria, could be better organized and made more effective with the punch card system. The benefits to the Nazi party were all but limitless. If an agreement could be made, but Watson had them at the names and locations of Jews in Poland, because that was Hitler's next target. <laughs> 